and welcome to Feed and Flourish, the bite-sized podcast series from the Closters Forum with me, Hannah McInnes. In this series, I'll be talking to experts about biodiversity and about ways in which we can transform our food systems in order to positively preserve our planet. The Closters Forum brings together thought leaders and decision makers in the Swiss Alps to inspire discussions and cultivate collaborations around some of the world's most pressing environmental challenges. Hello, my name is Eric Binslev. For the past 20 years, I have been helping um, mission-driven food and drinks brands um, in Europe and United States um, scale their business across the world. I have also been uh, a, a sort of driven by uh, making systemic change within my industry, and which is why I have partnered with um, the Closters Forum this year to tackle um, the big issue of um, biodiversity in the food supply chain. Am I right in thinking that you and Sir Paul McCartney, nonetheless, are the men responsible for Meat-Free Mondays? I'll let Paul take all the honour for the Meat-Free Monday campaign, but I was, um, yes, I was the one that set it up and arranged the whole campaign to go live. So you've also worked with other big names, Prince Charles, of course, uh, Dutch Organics and Dalesford. It feels like they have quite different ideas in terms of how humans should eat. I think that Dutch Organic and Dalesford have very much emphasised local meat eating and the McCartneys, of course, as we've said, encourage vegetarianism. What's your own personal philosophy, particularly with biodiversity and saving the planet in mind? Well, I think they're all part of the same picture. Um, we need we need all the sort of the disciplines uh, to produce food that take care of the soil and the environment in which we produce these foods. That goes for the big picture about meat consumption actually destroying um, our planet because it's um, mostly you know meat produced. Um, in a very intensive way, and the feed to feed these animals are accounting for up to seventy percent of the arable land in the world. So we have a real problem on the on the plant based on the on the meat consumption. But when it comes to the biodiversity um, itself, if you look at the way that we produce food, the prince's philosophy, which comes ultimately from Rudolf Steiner who during the big industrial revolution in the early 1900s highlighted the fact that we were destroying, in fact, our own habitat in our quest for efficiency. Um, it's now come to a head. Um, so it's not an either or. It's a both inclusive. We need um, all solutions on deck in order to tackle the planet's climate. And my personal belief is aligned with the data surrounding this. But it's hard to understand how you have all on deck when emphasising going meat-free involves generally shipping in foods from hundreds of miles away, surges in products like almond milk and avocados. And that process seems detrimental to the preservation of biodiversity and of forests and of the planet. It seems to be that actually it is negatively affecting biodiversity, that emphasis on veganism and taking it away from localism. Well, I mean, you can't, 
it's very it's very hard for the average consumer and for the for the average dipping in and out to this industry to understand what actually is needed and what is not needed. Within any uh, action, there is a cause, um, and with every cause, there is an action. And and basically, what we're looking at here is a is a is a very complex system. Um, there is too much meat production going on, but on the other hand, we need um, we need uh, animals husbandry as we've known it in parts of the world where grasslands and grasses um, needs animal to to actually sequester carbon and to help our planet. But that doesn't take away the 90% plus of all meat is produced in a super intensive way and is using way too much land in order to, to have the energy in, input for those animals to thrive. So meat consumption per se is not bad. It's just that the bulk of the meat is produced in such a way that it's destroying the planet far more than flying avocados in from Mexico. It's, it's a complex issue. So is meat consumption and over consumption of meat the biggest problem do you think we're facing where biodiversity and preserving the planet is concerned in relation to food systems and our approach to, to food supply systems? All production of food will need to be further aligned to what we call uh, regenerative agriculture. So whether it's food for animals or it's food for humans, we need to go into a system where we are using crop rotation and we're taking care of the biodiversity surrounding the area where we're producing. That's one side. When we come to what the output crop should be, obviously there has to be a shift from producing a primary feed for animal to primary feed for humans. And that's where the meat, um, you know, um, debate comes in. This is not a vegan against the meat eaters. This is this is about the industrial complex that we have all contributed to. That needs to be completely rewired and redesigned in order to produce food at scale, while at the same time reestablishing the ecosystem that we have destroyed. I suppose the difficulty is that in emphasizing a diet that is vegetarian or vegan. It often takes away from the importance of a diet that is based on eating local and the priority then becomes avoiding meat. My question is, is it not always preferable to try and eat a diet that is local and seasonal and organic? Is that not the best way of preserving biodiversity and the health of the environment? Well, it's certainly a huge contributor. Um, but again, uh, it's it's a very complex issue. Um, and also, we haven't found a way to produce ultimately um, food that is affordable, local, organic, biodynamic, um, and primarily plant-based. That is kind of the ultimate goal. Right now, we have an elite of us, and I, I readily claim myself to be that, people who can afford to, to buy local organic delicious food from the local um, organic farm. And you have the rest of the world, which are depending on the, the cheapest produce coming into their supermarket, which often comes from countries where it's far more efficient to produce, say, a carrot than Northern Europe, where it's sometimes produced with, with massive subsidies behind it. Absolutely. And that feels incredibly frustrating that 
what in days gone by was the most obvious and easy to come by, local market bought food, is now something associated very much with elitism, as you say, and affluence. The farmer's market is certainly a prime example. And it really feels such a shame that society is in that place, that the cheapest food is not the food that comes from nearby and that is the most easy, natural thing to come by. Absolutely. I think the current quarantine world um, has many lessons to teach us in this way, because at this sort of shortage of supplies, shortage of movement, shortage of socialising, what we're realising that we are able to adapt uh, and modify behaviour pretty much overnight. You have (laughs) three billion people having modified their life in order to contain a virus. Um, I just put it to the world that how can we use this bloody pandemic model to change behavior um, when it comes to the much more urgent and much more dangerous topic of climate change? And in, in that debate, how do we change food behavior? I mean, do we really, I mean, we have to question the, I would say the, the market model that we're currently using where Consumers can buy asparagus at any time of year, where consumers can buy lamb at any time of year. Um, I think there's a lot of retracing. I think the marketplace needs to retrace the ultimate necessity and balance it with what what is actually good for a longer term and whilst at, at the same time satisfy what the market needs. I mean, the market never stops, right? We will always want lamb from New Zealand when it's not available in our region. It's really interesting to hear you mention the effect that quarantine mode might have on habits. Of course, when people listen to this, I hope that we are long out of isolation, that things are continuing as normal and our lives very much back to how they were. But it is the case, isn't it, that at the moment people are having to think really hard about the food supply chain, about where their food comes from. They can't have what they want when they want, as they might have been used to if they're fortunate enough. And it's really interesting. Is it going to be, do you think, that when we go back to normal, people's behaviour and their habits and their attitudes change for the better? I think that um, I, I, I see a tendency where we're going back uh, away from the 20th century model of thinking that every change, every systemic change would have to be powered by either consumers or government. Um, We now live in a world where the corporation is so global and so powerful that the corporations are the one that will ultimately be the big change, the change maker. And in this, the food supply chain comes in to play a vital role. What you're seeing right now is that sort of my small world of having built essentially what is luxury brands within the food sector, Dutch Original, Stalesford Organic, um, and very high-end, you know, whether it be teas, coffees, sodas, coconut water, whatever. We're seeing that world in a confluency with the big industrial FMCG world. Um, so the, the timing for systemic change is perfect. It's kind of the perfect storm in some ways, because this change will not be driven by consumers. 
this is a, not a body shop, no animal cruelty sort of driven change. This is a change driven by big corporations seeing their entire supply chain being threatened by climate change. And unless the big corporations take that sort of supply chain threat very seriously, um, they're not going to have a business. You will not expect the same amount of crops of, say, corn to supply your cornflakes production forever because of drought, because of climatic changes, because of soil erosion and soil depletion. These things are not taken for given anymore. So you kind of begin to see the emergence of a bit of a space race for supply. And that's place race where supply would only be sustained by driving it into a sustainable model, a regenerative model, a model where you can begin to rely on this particular land producing this particular crop um, over and over again. So the people like Prince Charles, like so many others, Rufus Steiner, Carol Bamford, great people in, in the Brit just in Britain who have been advocating this for decades. Their predictions come to fruition. We need sustainability to be in the heart of everything we do, unless otherwise we won't have a sustained um, survival as corporations, as human beings, as a species. But the corporations don't have the incentive to do it, do they? And when, when, for example, this is over, this period of quarantine, et cetera, is over, the corporations are very likely to go back to doing things the way they've always done in order to make the big bucks. Yeah, but the commitment has been made um, by the biggest FMCG companies in the world, headed up by Emmanuel Faber, who's the CEO of the Danone out of France, you have Nestle, you have Procter & Gamble and Unilever um, and the Mars Corporation in America all pledging. The key pledges is to um, focus on biodiversity in the supply chain, and that will be actionable and measurable in, very, in a very short time frame. And then secondly, um, investigate which of the diverse, you know, we, we're basically getting our 100% you know, of our feed from nine crops. <laughs> and there, there are thousands out there. So that is also the big the biodiversity uh, um, question is that we have to find other things to eat or varieties of things to eat, which might not be so efficient, but takes care of the environment and our nutrition at the same time. So those big corporations, which together, they just launched in Madrid in September last year, pledge, they together represent half a trillion dollars worth of turnover. Um, so that is a major pledge. Yes, it's going to be incredibly hard for these corporations to satisfy growth in turnover and growth in profit while at the same time making such um, systemic changes to, to their, their business model. Um, and I see the two can't work together. Faber has said, of Danone, has said, we, we are committed to sacrificing profitability in the short, medium term in order to make the systemic change, because that is what is needed. But unless they do, unless corporations do that, are prepared to, to sacrifice earnings for a period, then this change ultimately would drive decay in the corporation that doesn't change, because the supply will simply not be there or it will be too expensive for them to buy.
Do you have real genuine faith then that big corporations, big companies are now actually ready, ready to take on this change, ready to adapt their mindset the way they do things? I, I feel there's a huge, I mean, having worked in the space for 20 years, the fact that we have the PNGs and the Nestle's and the Unilever's and the Danone's of this world wanting to do that, it is a seismic change in corporate behavior. But it's also, it's generated out of self-interest. Of course it is. So there is, the, that's the carrot. Where the carrot is unclear is an industry which has been, the, you know, been the, the systemic destroyer of all of this, which is ultimate starts with oil. It's our addiction to oil. It's oil and gas companies, it's chemical companies, and it's agrochemical companies that have been driving a business model that has led to complete destruction of everything, despite the fact that this has been known for decades. These agrochemical companies that are promoting one way of producing food which basically, while it satisfies shareholders and efficiency, it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy anything we need as a human species. It doesn't satisfy nutrition. It doesn't satisfy biodiversity. And it actually is a detrimental destruction of, of our habitat. As well, though, as being down to corporations to change, people listening don't want to feel helpless. They want to feel that they can definitely make a difference as individuals, as humans, what's your advice to people when they're going about their day, thinking about the diet that they should have, where they should get their food from, what they should be eating? Number one, care about what you eat. That's, that's number one. If you care about what you eat, I would say the guide comes by itself. And the guide obviously includes local, seasonal, organic. It also means changing to less of a meat-based diet, to more of a plant-based diet, that doesn't mean that you have to sacrifice meat altogether. I mean, what I created with Paul McCartney and the McCartney family was not about alienating um, the people who are choosing to eat meat. It's actually just saying, guys, if you care about the environment, just cut out meat one day a week. It will make a huge difference. And that's why I, I want to go back to all, all hands on deck. We need consumers. We need corporations. We also need government. Government, the EU is, uh, and also the UK government post-Brexit, uh, are talking about changing the subsidy rules that it actually promotes um, far more biodiversity and sustainability in the way that we are we're subsidizing with taxpayers' money um, the way you produce food. I could talk to you all day. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. I'm delighted. Thank you very much.